Hi, I'm Dave Westberg, and you're listening to Billboard Insider Podcast, where I interview industry leaders about trends impacting the U.S. out-of-home advertising business. This podcast is sponsored by Adomni. Increase your revenue by listing your billboard on Adomni. Today's guest is Sean Riley, CEO of Lamar Advertising and chair of the board of directors of the Outdoor Advertising Association of America. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, Dave, and thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to visit with you about this industry that we all love and feel so passionately about. Couldn't agree more. Sean, you head the OAAA committee that is searching for a replacement for Nancy Fletcher. How's the search going and when can we expect an announcement? Well, let's start with the fact that you can't replace Nancy Fletcher. I mean, Agreed. she is an incredibly effective face of and voice for the industry for almost three decades. So tough act to follow. I will say that I'm really pleased with the way the search has gone, and we have settled on a candidate that I believe will rock the industry. You know, almost every constituent of the OAAA should be really proud about the process. We had a great committee. We interviewed a half dozen excellent candidates down the stretch, any of whom could have led us into the future. But I will say this, the candidate we now have on board is something special. And I feel real good about the process. We should have an announcement in you know the next several weeks. Terrific. So stay tuned. Okay. Sean, in April, Louisiana State House Committee voted 14 to 3 against an anti-billboard bill. I was watching the bill and Lamar's response, and you, you, you really had an effective, a firm, and a fact-based response to the legislation. What are the lessons here as to how to respond to out-of-home advertising critics? Great question, and I have to say, Dave, the number one lesson is be ready. This literally came out of nowhere, and ironically and fortunately, it was in our own backyard, Mm -hmm. where naturally we've nurtured outstanding relationships with public officials. But again, the, the watchword here is constant vigilance when it comes to legislative affairs. You never know where it's going to come from. In this case, we were caught in the crossfire between Louisiana truckers and Louisiana trial lawyers. It was bizarre, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Again, maintain those relationships. Be supportive of your state trade associations and, of course, the OAAA, both of which were helpful to us as we prepared to rebut was, you know, at the end of the day, a pretty ridiculous bill to start with. I was impressed also. I mean, you had done the spade work. You know, a lot of -of out-of-home executives treat government as the enemy. You've served in the legislature. You've been on boards for both governors of both parties. You've been on the Louisiana State Education Boards. And it seems like, Sean, you you had the relationships to say you didn't treat government as as an enemy. You you, You were a partner and you had the relationships to say, look, I've served down here. This is my take on what's what this bill is about. And you had the credibility people listen. Well, there's that. And I appreciate your kudos in that regard. You know, my message to others that are listening is to echo what you said. You know, don't treat government as the enemy. Treat them as a partner. And I'll speak to this as our visit goes on. But mm-hmm. government, to some degree, is our partner in our endeavor. We exist as an industry in partnership with the hundreds of communities that we serve. And we have the privilege of being part of this landscape, the viewscape of the community. And we need to be proactive when it comes to working with the community and our role in that landscape. And, you know, I take that to heart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was also impressed by the website, the response. 
was facts-based. It wasn't name-calling. You were very direct about where you thought there were errors that the folks running this bill were making in terms of facts, but it wasn't name-calling. I was impressed by that. Well, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to treat people with respect, then you, you know, you honor their ability to basically ferret out truth from fiction. We were afforded the opportunity to do that. We told our story. I thought, again, the Lamar team that took this on, I just was the mouthpiece. At the end of the day, there was, as you mentioned, a lot of fact-based research. Yes. And fortunately, we were given a venue to uh, tell our side of the story very effectively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sean, can you talk a little about some of Lamar's sustainability initiatives? It seems like you're doing a, quite a bit if it's high-efficiency lights, lighting controls, eco-vinyl, recycling vinyl, solar, telemetry with vehicles. Can you talk about some of the things Lamar is doing? Uh, Dave, you've hit on one of my favorite topics. Because, hmm. you know, I'm, I'm just super proud of Lamar's leadership in the industry around this issue of sustainability And, you know, on this one, the credit goes to Bobby Switzer, who's, as you know, head of all things production at Lamar. And he's a true visionary and evangelist when it comes to sustainable industry initiatives. And also to Greg Goche, who implements these initiatives on Lamar's behalf. The two of them truly pioneered the transition to PEC from paper and paste, oh, these 10 years ago or so. And really charged the whole industry with making the transition, not just Lamar, but the whole industry. I think uh, that's something that that I'm proud of, as I mentioned. They also pioneered, the two of them pioneered the development of super efficient LED lights on behalf of Lamar and now the industry. Mm -hmm. That's not only a wise investment for Lamar shareholders, it's a great investment for our planet. So Mm -hmm. like I said, that's something that I think kudos to those two guys. Mm Mm-hmm. And since you mentioned it, we actually deploy more solar arrays than anyone in the industry. Am I right? You're on 2,000 billboard structures right now. You've got about 7,000 panels up. Yeah. So that makes Lamar the largest deployer of distributed array solar panels in the country. Wow. Now, the trick there is the word distributed array, right? Most of the people that deploy solar do it in large fields in a single array, but we're spread out all over the place. But that said, that's a part of reducing that electric bill and taking pressure off the grid. How do you handle the battery problem? Seems like some of the outdoor guys I talk to, you get a battery problem where you've got to have an effective battery that works, that stores up power for days where whatever, it's cloudy or whatever. How do you deal with the battery problem? So you're absolutely right there. Battery technology needs to evolve for us to really deploy solar more effectively and efficiently and more broad-based. And that's going to happen. You know, you've got a lot of really smart people working on that. And the electric car industry, I think, is going to produce breakthroughs that will inure to our benefit. But, you know, as you say, right, we generate during the day and we burn at night. So we have to have battery technology that works. Yep. Otherwise, we are stuck in the, the world of the treatment that big utility companies are going to give us on our net metering arrangements, which, you know, again, that's a, that's a sticky wicket. And sometimes those net metering arrangements don't work in our favor or really in, in the favor of the whole solar movement. So mm-hmm. we need three things to happen. We need better battery technology to get more aggressive in solar deployments. We need better, I believe, more fair and more standardized net metering arrangements. And finally, you know, there's a dissipation of power when you send power over power lines. And if we could generate 
and sell to our neighbor, that would be nirvana. So Hmm. if those three things happen, you'll see a whole lot of renewable energy initiatives in our industry. The most remarkable fact about Lamar, when I read your 10K, is that your regional managers have an average of 33 years with Lamar. That's not 33 years experience. That's 33 years with Lamar. And I find that remarkable in an age of free agent employees. How does the company do it? (laughs) That's, That's a great question. We have senior leadership that is incredibly well tenured. As a matter of fact, for most of them, their very first job they ever got was as an account executive with Lamar. Wow. It extends beyond just the regional tier of leadership. If you look at our now approaching 200 general managers around the country, their average tenure is over 15 years with the company. Wow. So how does that happen? You know, it starts with a great corporate culture. You know, I I was very fortunate in that my mentor, my father, really instilled a great corporate culture here that he passed on to my brother, Kevin. And and now I have the great privilege of carrying on the legacy. And there are essentially two business principles that we live by at Lamar. And they're really life principles when you think about it. Number one is the golden rule. Real simple. Just treat other people like you want to be treated. And at the end of the day, business issues just aren't so hard if you always keep that at the forefront of what you do in the business world. So, yeah, the golden rule is part of our DNA. You know, another thing passed on really through all of Lamar land is the notion that we should leave it better than we found it. By this, I mean the communities we operate in. I alluded to it earlier that we really take that to heart, that we are part and partners with the communities we operate in and that it's a privilege for us to be part of that viewscape and that landscape and we need to give back and we do that daily you know whether it's just volunteering or whether it's putting up public service copy you know lamar donates almost 150 million dollars a year in public service copy (laughs) wow uh, that's part of it yep part of it and why does that lead to that you know why that leads to tenure that leads to people wanting to be part of a company that they know cares and that gives back and they want to stay with it. One other thing we do is we rigorously promote from within. When a position comes open in Lamar land, it's going to be filled by somebody within Lamar land and that creates another opportunity in Lamar land and it's a virtuous cycle. And you know, you put that together with a great corporate culture and we've built and retained the most experienced and best team in the industry. Let's stop here for a word from our sponsor. Adonis Buying Platform enables advertisers and agencies to easily find and buy your unsold billboard space. With Audience IQ technology, advertisers can target consumer profiles, such as demographics, behavior, and interests. Whether you have a Watchfire for Metco or Dactronics billboard, Adomni is easy to connect. Join the fastest-growing out-of-home network alongside over 70,000 digital screens. Visit Adomni.com or email sales at Adomni.com to learn more. Mention this Billboard Insider podcast to receive one free year of Adomni's white-labeled booking engine on your website. Sean, Lamar's cash flow margin runs 10 to 20% higher than the other public out-of-home companies. Is it really the plant or is there something different about the way Lamar runs its business? Well, there's several things to talk about here, Dave. And first, yes, we run a very tight ship year in and year out. Our expense growth is kept at or below 2%. We're well known for that. So if you have expense growth that you keep below GDP and you grow your top line slightly better than GDP, you're going to get margin expansion. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're looking forward to this year. 
We think our margins consolidated after corporate, after everything, consolidated EBITDA should be pushing 45%. And I think we're going to get to that number, which is, as you mentioned, that's a, quite a feat. Mm-hmm. We compensate our GMs slightly differently than other companies. They're treated as complete business people. They hire, they fire, they turn on the lights, they turn off the lights. They have complete control of their P&L all the way through the P&L, top and bottom, and they're compensated accordingly. And I think that philosophy of being flat, decentralized, autonomous business units where the people that run our business units are treated as complete business people, I think that makes a huge difference. And it is a little bit of a philosophical difference than some of the other places I've seen. Now, we do have some structural advantages. We have lower ground lease expense because of our middle market focus. As you well know, our ground lease expense runs, give or take 20%. That's helpful in maintaining those higher margins. And and that's the difference between running outdoor companies in places like Little Rock, Arkansas, as opposed to places like Manhattan, right? Right. And then, you know, we also have a little bit of an advantage in our mix of businesses. We are more traditional out of home and less transit and airports. And of course, those businesses have lower margins to begin with. So you put those two things together. And like I said, we will pace the industry in margins. An anecdotal story. I heard a banker who had been talking with your CFO and then was expecting to get passed down the line to an assistant treasurer or a controller of the banker said, now, who should I follow up with on this? Your CFO said, oh, that would be me. And I remember what struck me was that's a culture that's a lean culture and a direct culture that is not about multiple layers of bureaucracy. That's true. And that's by design. Again, the business school books call it flat, decentralized organizational chart. I like to call it respecting the business judgment that is in the field and creating a corporate infrastructure that services the field rather than is command and control. When I walk around our place here in Baton Rouge, I constantly remind our corporate folks that at the end of the day, if we're not servicing the folks in the field, our GMs, our account executives, our production managers, our folks that are hanging vinyls, if we're not helping them get better at their job, then we don't have a reason to exist. And we constantly reinforce that service ethic here at corporate. Hmm. We're not command control. When we pick up the phone and we take a call from a general manager or a sales manager, the first words out of our mouth is, how can I help? Not here's how you do it. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is also sort of a business philosophy that I think has served us well. We've got a lot of listeners who are independent out-of-home companies and may want to sell someday. What kinds of properties are of most interest to Lamar? Great question. Let me phrase it this way. Recalling that we're a REIT, right? Mm-hmm. The first thing I'd say is high-quality REIT-qualified structures. That would be number one. And closely followed by structures that enhance the distribution we can offer our customers. It has to be not just more inventory in a particular DMA. It has to be quality inventory that enhances our offering to the customer. And keep those two things in mind, high quality requalified, and look at it from the point of view of customers. And you'll have the secret sauce that'll get Lamar excited. And, you know, given our scale and scope and the strength of our balance sheet, you know, we can afford to be picky now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you have it. Yep. Landmark has accumulated a portfolio of about 700 billboard leases and wants to keep growing. What does this mean for out of home? Well, you know, our relationship with Landmark is complicated, (laughs) to say the least, (laughs) because my job as the CEO of Lamar is to accretively deploy capital on behalf of our shareholders. And one of the ways we do that 
is purchasing easements under our structures. And so to that degree, Landmark is actually a competitor. And so we have decided that their services and offering is not something that's helpful to Lamar or Lamar shareholders. Doesn't mean that they can't be helpful to other capital constrained players in our industry, but Lamar's not capital constrained. We have a very, very strong balance sheet and we're always looking to, as I said, deploy capital accretively on behalf of our shareholders and purchasing easements is one way we do that. Makes sense. What does the out-home, what is it doing right and what does it need to do better as it migrates to automated buying of -of out-of-home inventory? Great question. And, you know, we're in the very early inning of this endeavor, uh, both Lamar and and the industry. I think you said recently, first batter and the batter got a double. That was how you sort of self-evaluated. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. We're in the first inning, the first batter got a double, second batter up. Yeah. For the industry in general and for Lamar in particular, I have tasked our team that's in charge of this, Ian Dallimore and, and Ross Riley, with really two rules. Number one, control our CPMs. And the industry needs to think about this in a rigorous way. We don't want to let our inventory be subject to a pure auction environment, which is what led to a lot of consternation for the digital publishers four and five years ago when they went down this road. That's number one, control your CPMs. Number two is make sure that it is an incremental new dollar, a a digital dollar that we otherwise would not have received. And this is important for a number of reasons. Number one, it, you know, this is about growing the pie. And if we're going to grow the pie, we need to go after that digital pot that otherwise wouldn't come to us. And number two, these digital channels actually cost Lamar more than our traditional channels of sales. Is that because of commissions that have to go to the different uh, partners? Exactly. Hmm. Lamar's overall cost of sales through traditional channels runs around 7%. These digital channels are more than that. So if all I'm doing is taking a dollar I otherwise would have gotten and running it through this channel, then my margins are going to go down. So we are being very vigilant on that front. And we are, I believe, doing a good job of making sure that we're only allowing digital buyers to have access to these channels. You know, this year, as I've told the marketplace, I think incrementally, this is the year we're going to be able to measure automated buying and its contribution to our pro forma growth at Lamar, Mm -hmm. number one. And number two, given that it's, again, in the early innings, it's easy for us to police those two fundamental rules that I laid down. So, Sean, am am I right? One of the ways online buying got out of control is you would have multiple buying services piggybacking on each other. So you have an ad being bought for a certain price and effectively only about a tenth or a fifth of that ad, in some cases, actually got into buying an ad online, and the rest of it was cut out by middleman in the in-between. Is what you're telling me, the way you've built controls, you can't have that sort of piggybacking that could result in a huge siphoning off of the actual ad value between, for instance, Lamar and the actual end user. Yeah, so two things, two things there, and your insights are exactly right. From the point of view of advertiser, let's call it Procter & Gamble, Mm -hmm. there was no transparency or very little transparency in what amount of spend went where. Right, right. There was a lot of siphoning off and such that upwards of 35, 40% of the spend was siphoned off somewhere, somehow in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. There was also the problem of outright fraud and bots and clicks, 
fraud and thumb fraud and all the things that you've heard about advertisers complain about and showing up on sites they didn't want to be affiliated with. So you had all that stuff from the advertiser's point of view, but also from the digital publisher's point of view, the people that own the space, let's call it the New York Times or Martha Stewart Living or ESPN.com or SI.com, they lost control of their CPMs because their space was in a pure auction environment and it was a race to the bottom. Who could get it the cheapest, right, instead of who could get space that was going to be helpful? If the conversation is who can get it the cheapest, then ultimately both the digital publishers and the advertisers come up short. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to avoid those problems if we're smart as an industry. Lamar's been pushing for standardization in digital billboard design. I think Bill Ripp was out at the IBO USA pushing that idea. What is it and why is that important? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, God bless Bill for being the person who's out there and trying to get the industry to move as one. This dates back to the turn of the last century, Dave, when the industry settled on a standard poster size, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a myriad of aspect ratios out there where you've got different sizes and plot models and a bunch of different models on what digital means, it confuses our customers. Standardization, standardization around aspect ratio and standard sizes, standardization around slot models, how many different slots over what period of time. I think all those things that we can do to make it easier for customers to understand exactly what they're getting could move the needle for us in terms of garnering more share. And that's what it's about, right? Mm -hmm. And we have a ways to go. You know, some folks are on the six slot model. Some folks are on the eight slot model. Some folks are on the 12 slot model. Yes. Lamar has a little bit of both. So we're not pure yet. We have some eight slot modeling. We have some six slot modeling. Some of it's regulatory driven. Some of it is just evolution. But again, standardization around a single slot model, I think, would help. Am I right? I heard you recently, again, also talking at a conference, suggesting that maybe fewer slots might be better. Yes. I happen to believe, looking at it from the point of view of our customers, that less is more. Yes. And I want to be able to deliver real value to our customers in a way that doesn't dilute the power of the medium. And we don't want to be perceived as grasping. Let's give our customers an experience that moves the needle for them, that makes their cash register ring, that makes them feel good about their spend with us so that they come back. Mm -hmm. Sean, a question that comes out of yesterday morning's Wall Street Journal. The journal suggested that very soon, 95% of Chinese imports to the U.S. will be tariffed at 10 to 25%. What kind of impact will this have on a Lamar? It seemed like the early tariffs, people were able to avoid impacts, for instance, in digital signs because of the way the signs were coded when they were imported. But how might an additional increase in tariffs, what, if any, impact you think it could have on Lamar? You know, right now, obviously, we're not seeing anything because of what you referenced, right? There's some workarounds. Right. And from what I'm hearing, the Chinese are very good at these workarounds, such that they're avoiding tariffs by doing things like not finishing product 100% on Chinese soil, instead shipping components to another place such that it's assembled and no longer deemed a Chinese product. Does it thrill me that the product that I'm buying or potentially will be buying in the future is working around? Not really, because that's inflation as well. I believe, and you're to everyone's benefit to get this resolved as soon as possible. Yes, but what we're being told by our vendors is it's not an issue yet, but, you know, that's yet. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the side effects is obviously as everyone seeks to do workarounds or move sourcing from China, for instance, to Malaysia or whatever, everybody else is trying to do that. So maybe that leads to some increase in prices just because there's some choke points in the supply chain. Yeah, there's choke points and there's additional steps that, quite frankly, you don't need. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there has to be some inflationary impact from that. Mm-hmm. Sean, what keeps you awake nights? <laughs> You know, Dave, I'm sleeping pretty well right now. I believe it. You look at your market cap. I think you are twice out front's market cap, almost five times clear channels. You're in a, you've had some good numbers. I'm not surprised. Well, you know, there's that. All seems to be well in Lamar land, but also everything seems to be clicking in the industry. Outfront is now posting some great numbers, and that's a good thing. You know, when their inventory tightens up, it's good for us. Clear Channel is now an independent company. You know, they're free of the shackles of their parent, which was, you know, quite frankly, I think, uh, starving them for capital, given the fact that they were going through bankruptcy. Agreed. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing in the industry. And if you look at growth in the industry, it's phenomenal. We grew faster. I'm talking about Lamar, not just Lamar. I'm talking about the industry also. We grew faster the last couple of years than every other measured medium on the planet, except for what folks do on their phones. That's incredible. I think we're going on 37, 38 straight quarters of revenue growth as an industry. I mean, that's something to actually pause and celebrate. Good times. Good times for the industry. Yep. That's all for this week. Thanks for appearing on the show, Sean. Hey, Dave, I, I enjoyed it and have me back. We'll do. This podcast was sponsored by Adomni. Increase your revenue by listing your billboard on Adomni. You can listen to episodes of the Billboard Insider podcast by visiting billboardinsider.com or by subscribing to the Billboard Insider podcast on iTunes or any of the usual podcast outlets. Our email is billboardinsider at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in a couple weeks.